Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Originative's Origins Podcast. This is the second season, Ehekat, and today Carl and I are continuing a conversation on emotional and spiritual learning. This is part two, and we jump into the conversation with me sharing with Carl about my process of learning how to hunt for the first time. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll get back to the conversation. And I would say nine times out of ten, you've got to be disappointed and disillusioned by by anything you know and and it's almost as if like as you get older like you have this far distant memory of you know like a guy named Hertner that you happen to stumble upon and you were at the right age and he was right at the right age and it was the right circumstance and he would he wanted to mentor you and you wanted to be mentored I don't know. Yeah, I, I right? think you do develop a an acceptance of all the things that you end up having to do alone. If because you're not going to wait, you're like, well, you can't wait for everything. And this is a perfect example. Um chiefly because I've bought the hunting tags and the hunting tags are a very chronos window. <laughs> like I don't get to just do it on my time or whenever someone appears. And so I kind of like testing Kairos by investing in Kronos, if that makes sense, where there's this deadline, there's this window, and it's only going to happen then. And then you see what evolves. You see what kind of (laughs) manifests as you get, as you inch closer to it. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, well, even if it's just me going alone, I'll do that, but is there some other magic at foot here that I don't that I don't understand? Right. And I'm just gonna watch and wait and try to be observant and try to, you know, seize the moment if something else arises. And for the most part, nothing has. Um, <laughs> but I'm okay with it. Uh-huh. Right. Um, I mean, nothing. Nothing of your approach to life. Uh, sounds uncommon in what you're describing you i think you've just really like polished the language on the whole thing and that was some good delivery but you know i've seen it time again now and manifested in both ways right like just it's 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 about biting it off right for all it's worth and sometimes it goes easy and sometimes it doesn't yeah i mean there's Every possibility that, well, I would say that the that the magic is always possible. So even when you're alone invested in that learning, you don't stop looking for it, mm-hmm. right? It, just because it wasn't like another human who popped up out of nowhere and said, oh, man, yeah, I do that. I'd love to help you, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. figure out. What does it mean to go hunting with a boat? Well, like I, Mm -hmm. I have no idea. And, um, and for the most part, like my expectations are, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And I've researched as much as I can on YouTube and, and, and in general, I feel like that's, you know, wholly insufficient (laughs) for what, for what this task is, let alone the, you know, to just hint at that spiritual aspect, it's like, how do you do it through that lens, right? Like, 
what are the what are the rituals involved for yeah and but, i was but, talking to i was uh-huh, talking to dave and and dave is like it's actually better that you're not that you don't have a bunch of people that you're working with because you can put all of that intention into it yourself knowing what you know rather than developing bad habits or being disappointed by it not being what you want it to be when if you're dealing with someone else and i'm like that's a different way of looking at it that i didn't imagine because I only look at the deficiency of learning that I have. Like, I don't know how to do this. Well, how, so, what I was going to ask was, you know, if, if you're going to share about, you know, how you're coming to a very tenderfoot emish, as we would call it in the learning yeah. cycle language experience yeah. of hunting, um, you know, going back several podcasts here. And it's really interesting as a hunter-gatherer that you're beginning to embrace. Um, Not so much for the farmer, right? And and yet, if you go back enough in time, um, it it seems like you started off with the same vehement energy of, well, no one else is around kind of take me up on this and I'm going to go for it. And along the way is, you know, the last 10, 15 years of your life. So what is it that in this round feels maybe, I would say maybe you can speak of the uncertainty, but actually it's just embellished and wrapped up in the certainty of what though hasn't come around this time will evolve this beautiful story of how you became a hunter, right? In it's, you know, mythological, if we were to place it mythologically, you know, you've got this raggedy boy um, in the myth uh, retold and preserved by Martine um, uh, where no one else wanted to take him out into the village. I mean, out for, out to the hunt. everybody made fun of him and he was abandoned. So, you know, along the way, you know, will come the old Yassar, right? With the hair Mm -hmm. and, and you'll find a crookedy old bone and, and then, you know, like, it's just actually quite beautiful. But what are you thinking of all of that? Especially when I say, wait a minute, like go back to gardening and, and how is it, the same how is it deeper because of what we've discussed spiral learning and spiral experiences like i think you've got a lot to share yeah well going back to what dave's comment was it made me think of the intention that we had in harvesting bob the turkey at your house for thanksgiving right so the first turkey that I ever had a hand or was an accomplice in the harvesting of. And both you and I had a conversation. Um, this is the way I remember it. And if I remember it differently than it actually happened, then I apologize. Uh, but the way I remember this happening is that you and I had an intention to honorably harvest this turkey and really uh, celebrate its life. And we were trying to figure out how to do that. 
And your father-in-law, not speaking English, thought that we were being wusses and and that we were wishy-washy about like not wanting to actually dispatch the turkey. And he jumped in, right? And and it didn't really go well. Um, had it been you or or myself yielding the machete that was dull, it would have been as much of a problem. But it just happened to be him because because of the misunderstanding of of the language. And that is what I thought about when Dave was just like, you know, you could do it with other people that have done it before, but it may not meet your expectations of what the experience, what you believe and and what and why you're doing and what you feel like you need to do to uh, invest in and to honor that relationship. And I was like, that's really good advice because if anyone would have said that before we dispatched Bob, I had no experience to imagine. Mm-hmm. But because I had that, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's an example of the way it could go. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't entirely pleased. It's like, yeah, we had a great Thanksgiving. We, it, like <clears throat> All of that happened. And it's a great story, if nothing else. Like, it is a story. But I'm at the point where it's just like, I'd rather do it. I'd rather not have the mentorship and do it in the manner or with the intention that I'm, um, that's drawing me to that rather than to learn and be disappointed after it happened, you know, cause that's, that's a different type of learning. It's a mm-hmm. learning that could happen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I right. could walk away from it and be like, well, I'm never doing that again, but that was a certain, a certain type of learning. Right. And so it's, you know, maybe philosophically it's a glass half empty glass half full type of like question, but I don't think it really is. I think, I think Dave is onto something where it's just like, I didn't consider that. And that's actually how I'd prefer to look at it. So I'm very comfortable going alone. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's means totally un like unsuccessful. Well, uh, I yeah. mean, but even to say if the way you finished off that beautiful pondering, right? Like, even if it's unsuccessful, that's just not going to be the case. Um, because we're not in some utilitarian hunting course, right? right? You're, 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 success. you're, that can be it. You're already operating in a different realm to where. I mean, how often this is this is often what I've been thinking about going on the first hunt. Like I I don't even have a rush to get better at shooting because I haven't spent enough time just in the woods waiting. Like when was this is such the beauty. Like when I hear about guys that have been out for three or four days you know, and the bond that is developed. Um, and if it's just them on their own, like that solitude that feeds something, you know, I stay pretty busy and I do a lot in the company of my family. And it, there's something about that silence 
and nature over extended periods of time. Like I'll take a Thomas Merton walk up the mountain and I'll be back by dinner. That that's not what happens in a hunt or at mm. least what I'm imagining. Cause I can't speak from experience, but there's certainly a spiritual component of being able to just sit and wait. I mean, we have stories that are like begging for us to live them. Like, like the listener, right? To throw in mm. another one, you know, and when Martin Shaw and, and Daniel Deerdorf bring back this tale of, of a boy that was full of trouble and then, you know, they didn't know what to do with him. And then the uncle's like, well, I want you to go sit in the woods. Oh, for how long? I'm going in there and I'm going to, what do you want me to do? Bring me back a tiger? What What's it going to be? And he just says, no, I'd like you to just sit and listen. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, for how long? How about five years? You know, <laughs> you too, thinking about like even this season, you know, in your life right now, it's almost like that is the gift on top of all the time that you have to now fill it up with things. For some reason, you're being courted into an empty out of all things, except sitting there with your bow and waiting. Wow, like I, it just sounds great. Yeah, it feels great. And everything that led up to this, while it wasn't invited, maybe it was on some subliminal level, but... It's the gift of arriving at a place where you're just like, oh, I didn't think I was going to have this time, but mm -hmm. now I do. Mm -hmm. And I could get really anxious about it, which I've done in the past where I've been like, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to, how am I going to make money doing, <laughs> you know, how am I going to make a living? How is the family going to be, you know, secure? Uh, and at this point, I'm just like, this this means I can go hunting and try to <laughs> try to actually figure out how to do it. The hunting season mm -hmm. isn't eternal, you know. I'll have plenty of time mm -hmm. after October 10th. You know? Between now and then, it's like, okay, try to maintain all the other responsibilities that I have and uh and dedicate little by little an emotional and a spiritual investment of time into what this looks like and what is my relationship with it and really analyzing that i'm looking at how do i tap into my ancestors maybe last week we talked so much about honoring our ancestors and living a life that is at least worthwhile for them to observe and so here i'm like well if i don't have anyone locally who could be my mentor um how do i tap into all of the ancestral data that's just flowing and has always been flowing through my body regarding this. How do I look back and say, okay, this great, great, great grandfather, this great, great grandmother, like these people were, were living like this and they were closer to what I'm going to experience. How do I channel that? Where does that live in me today? Is there any kernel that's still, you know, ignitable? Uh, or is it all wet with modernity? 
that's the, the, the problem of like tech and the pace of life is that it's just like wet kindling or you're just like, okay, now I want to build a fire, you know, get my origins and my ancestors to speak to me through this fire. And I'm going to, I'm going to listen to the smoke. And it's just like, you're out there for, you know, God knows how long trying to light this wet stuff. Nothing can ignite because you've got so much anxiety and so many other priorities that are competing with it. And just like, that's the, the dampness of, of modernity, just like saturating all potential. Yeah. It's beautiful that you're bringing it up in that way. Uh, While my family was in town, you know, everybody comes in on different dates and then everybody's kind of like, you know, all of a sudden somebody says, well, are we doing a fire? (laughs) We have a circle. We've eaten. And why not, right? One, <laughs> is it someone? So was it one of your kids, though? Oh no, no, no! It was just family that was in okay, town, cool, and cool. it That's kind awesome. of began to trick. Yeah, except that they were not aware of how much it had rained that day. Okay, and that <laughs> you know how much wood is available because the big fire that I w- had wanted to do, like the overnight remembering of my dad from sunset to you know sunrise, sort of thing you know, there, there was a lot of preparation that needed to go into that, but I was commended to do this thing at the wrong time. And it turned out being that exact thing, just this frustrated toil because it had nothing to do with the preparation or the timing. It's not just, you know, preparation isn't always necessary. Sometimes you can, you know, have everything, all your ducks in line so that you're ready at any moment to go. Um, But, you know, the amount of different types of preparations that were going on to host and and be prepared here, there there were certain things that needed to take place for the fire, Mm -hmm. right? And one was, you know, dry wood. Um, (laughs) So anyway, it's really interesting how you're uh, tapping into a certain um, corded slowing down. I have been feeling that a lot. And I think that this is an interesting correlation with uh, emotional and spiritual development in that so much is more and more, faster and faster, sooner and sooner, until it comes to something like emotional or spiritual development. Why? Because a certain slowing down is required. A winter to hibernate. You know, last year at this season here in Maine, I was extremely preoccupied with the fact that our first winter was going to take place in a house that we had just bought. Uh, Unsure of budget. What's it going to cost us to keep this thing warm? How how can I possibly figure how much it's going to cost us to keep a house warm? Maybe track down the landlord before who knows how he ran things, you know, like, but you don't know what the, how much heat the house holds. Right. You don't even even if you do know that you don't know what next winter is going to look like. It could be more fierce than the one before. Sure. You could have a blowout 
electricity is gone for eight or nine days and you're depending on all these other sources of fuel and it throws your finances off. Who knows? Right. right? right. But, um, you know, being in a new house, there was a lot of preoccupations of budget. Also had to change out the roof, make sure there were no leaks and so on and so forth. And it was basically, you know, the kids have enough clothes that the snow blower works, that we have a vehicle that can make it through the snow, you know, like, for a bunch of Costa Ricans coming from China and going into a main winter without a lot of people to draw knowledge from, uh, though they did come in handy when it did. There was a <laughs> lot on my mind at this time of year. Okay. I bet. Right. Right <laughs> now going into this next winter, winter number two, I have nothing but a deep desire of slowing down. Like I am starving to carve that maple tree that we cut down before my dad died. Uh, well, the branches that had fallen down that we chopped up and I saved a bunch of the wood, um, right. you know, art projects, books, right? Because summer in Maine is so short and therefore so busy. And you've once, once it hits, you've got to be outside get as much done as you can before it's gone. Right. right. And that is extremely analogous to um, a lot of things, but spiritual development, emotional development in times that, you know, it's required to be, to have your tips on fire and be moving quickly through this or that. Yeah. But also allowing yourself to continuously take a step back the sabbatical, the winter, the hibernation, the hunt, the vigil all night of prayer, mm -hmm. you know, before the next season of, I don't know, serving 500 bowls of soup to somebody. Yeah. I mean, that gets to the concept of cyclical learning. I mean, you're analyzing what uh, the seasons are. This is what's appropriate now. And, okay, we're not going to do this right now because it makes more sense to do this in the winter. Or, hey, the only time we have to go swimming is now. So swim, 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 swim. <laughs> because right. in two months, you're not going to be able to go swimming. Embracing that, the conventional model of education is loosely built around that now. But it's really only a holdover from a time when it was purposeful to take part of the summer off so that people could help their families with the harvest. Uh, and now it happens because the uh, adults involved in it want their two months off. Right. <laughs> they, like I had, I had never thought about that. Like all the research <laughs> what, says. What a, what a, what an opposite um, embrace of summer, right? Right. Kids are needed for the the high times of harvest versus everybody's off. Let's be off together. Right. Let's just continue this because we really like these two months off. And from an educational perspective, you know, teachers will talk about the summer slide. And the summer slide is... These students haven't been in school for two months, two and a half months. 
and the things that we were working on daily in class have not been reinforced for two months. And so because it's abstract, irrelevant information, they, they it's the use it or lose it thing, right? So they're not using it for the summer. And so they lose it. And so, yeah, again, so they slide back, <laughs> you know, academically, they have this slide back. And so you spend the first four weeks, maybe six weeks doing review and catch up to get the kids back up to this, you know, okay, now we're on schedule. Now we're on target. All right. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, and the, the fact that that happens is actually a very biological, natural uh, source of evidence for why the system that we're engaging in right now as a whole is ineffective. It's wholly ineffective. You know, one thing that I want you to kind of highlight is is this, because I haven't thought about it in in this way, is that the, the, the educational calendar is cyclical, but for all of the monotony, monotonous ways that you would want it to be cyclical, it's almost like worsening the fact because it's kind of hinting at cyclical, but for all the wrong reasons. And I, and I think that's a really interesting deviation, defamation of the potential that cyclical learning can have when we're discussing these ebb and flow moments of heightened activity in the summer, slowed down in the fall, winter, because it's not like, first of all, it, it doesn't really adjust depending on different geographies and landscapes across the United States, let alone across the world. Right. You do have certain changes, you know, between Northern and Southern hemisphere, heaven forbid. I mean, God, at least like, at least they're not getting two summers off in the middle of winter in Santiago, Chile. Thank God, you know, like somebody had the idea of let's stick to a Southern hemisphere approach to something but really, it's a, it's a an impoverished relationship with seasons, and everything that we're talking about doesn't have to be that complex if we learn nature's rhythms. Right. The culture as we have evolved it now does not need to rely on a seasonal cyclical model of learning because the way that education is delivered is an antithesis to cyclical learning. It's a ritualized, still pretty much rote memory-based system. Um, And what I mean by that is that while people might do some clever activities here and there, we expect students to start at one place in August and to progress on track with the curriculum and be at a certain place, you know, chronologically in December. And then um, there's that brief, you know, gap because of Yule season where, 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 (laughs) where we used to be, we used to need those two weeks to go have a big freaking party and eat a bunch of food that was going to go bad. You know, that's why that that's why Yuletide was Yuletide was because, 
you wanted to harvest a lot of your meats at that time so that you're, you didn't have to feed those animals through the winter, right? Like mm -hmm. you didn't want to use good wow. grain to feed animals wow. when there wasn't this, this natural thing growing. And so they would have a right. big harvest and then they would preserve a right. lot of it with smoke and salt and this and that. Um, but they would have, yeah. it, but, you know, you're going to have, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's just like, you, you can't preserve all of it. So you're just, you may as well just have a big feast. So we have this tide over <laughs> where it's like, we are doing these rituals, like to pull a word that Martine uses all the time is for, in this like amnesiac way where we uh -huh. don't know why we do this. And it uh -huh. reminds me of rituals yeah. that you do within a religious order where you're like, oh, I'm just going through these sacraments, but I have no idea why, why I'm doing this, but they're telling yeah. me to do this. And I grew up doing it. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Right. But you, you don't, you don't really know what it's connected to. And so it's just yeah. this half-assed thing. It's and and so to have a, a school calendar, it's essentially a holdover from a cyclical time, but we don't live in that world anymore. And we haven't updated the calendar because people like their summers <laughs> off and you know, parents <laughs> want their kids home at Christmas time or whatever. It's a sort of um weird nebulous like well we're not doing this right but if we tried to change it too many people would complain right so yeah i mean i mean really if we thought as arbitrary as summers off or school calendars are right now and you know i, I would welcome any challenge to it it's not that i've thought too much about it but I, I mean when i was in school i used to always think like why do i need like two and a half months off like, why can't I just have seven days here, seven days there, seven days there, right? And be, if the whole model is set off to, you know, try to entertain my need for rest and relaxation, then you could have that model, right? But at least there would be a logic behind it, right? Faulty logic um, due to a superficial approach. Granted, there's a logic. Right now, we are living, like you said, in an amnesiac response to what used to have a reason which was summers were off because they were busy because it was time to really work the field and harvest and all the hands were needed on deck right now <laughs> most parents don't have two months off you got kids at home and they are definitely not out in the fields and nobody's out there with them. And that's just a lot of time. And there's only so many days of vacation that you can get off, you know, as a family, 10 days, this or that. But, but there's no logic. Um, it would, kids could be going to school and just having a great time experiencing summer uh, with their friends, with outdoor activities, because the winter's coming and then we got to be inside. Mm. Um, and then we can really focus on learning and, and on reading and so on and so forth. But summers can be full of like the kinesthetic activities or heaven forbid, we bring back gardening into standardized curriculum, <laughs> you right. know, like in, real in gardening which where, if, where if, you have some stake in it, it's not just a, like a pretty Pinterest photo. 
Right. Shoot. I mean, the pro- the problem right. with school gardens is that they start off at, with great intentions because you you'd love the idea of kids learning how to grow food, you know, vegetables is a great idea. Except that uh, what happens in a school garden? <clears throat> well, teachers. unless the teachers get a community of teachers together, and it's usually it usually yeah. whittles down to like it's one person's responsibility because everyone else uh-huh. is like, oh, well, I really don't have time for this. But unless you start no. seeds in, you right. know, January, February, then <laughs> what happens is, well, they're not going to do that because okay. you'd have to take some amount of time from the class to do that. Or, the, or that one teacher has got to be super dedicated to that. And then it's just their project. It's not the school's project. It's not the kid's project, right? So right there, you have a problem. And so what ends up happening is that they get donations from garden centers. And so they get these donations. And then when the kids are there, kids are like, well, I want to plant. And then the kid grabs yeah, the plant, right. you know, and yanks it out of, out of the, yeah, the little pot. Yeah, yeah. And the teacher's like, ah, <laughs> right? like, yeah. like, no, you know, like those plants are good plants. And so the, the value of the plants is all in like making sure that it, that it gets into the garden and can look like a Pinterest photo. And then to do that, you're essentially removing the kids from every angle of it. It's insane. It's insane. You know, you know, really, I mean, you can't expect more than that one to be interested in the community garden. (laughs) All irony intended. Um, Yeah. Like, you know, homes are sparse when it comes to gardens and so what i was thinking about earlier when i was you know thinking about all of this seasonal activity like it's not necessarily everyone that feels that summers are busy like yes if you're like out and about doing hiking up in the mountains but like the busyness i want to like just reframe the busyness that I was talking about in terms of like, you know, like as we were anxiously awaiting mother's day to see if that first frost was really going to be the, you know, the, I mean, the last frost, like, sure. And, and you've got down in your basement, all of these seedlings that have sprouted and I'm like, Oh my gosh, they're getting taller and they just need to get into the ground. You know, all the excitement that now, in as the fall approaches feels like extreme disappointment because I'm like, I should have put the corn in sooner, (laughs) but, but at that time we were excited. Right. Um, You know, really the summer became uh, the, the activity of the home has been molded by a garden Mm. and, and it's been beautiful. I bet. Um, And both glow and I, Glow more so, you know, she's been, I would say, like more heavily involved in the garden process, like, and because she actually has, this is the irony on top of it all. She's a teacher, right? So she can live this like summers off back into the garden, right? right sort of thing. Right. So she loves it at bringing energy back to her in spite of the toil. Toil can actually give you energy. Heck yeah. Energy isn't just about relaxation, right? As we are approaching into the winter, that's that's the thing that we're like trying to define is like how to have peace. Cause you, you know, it's been like, man, this has been a long season. Like 
I don't know what the next winter is going to look like because I really miss being out with my plants. That's where I want to be, you know? Um, So there, there's adjustments to be made um, all around um, as we ponder and consider possibilities of different rhythms and cyclical living requires a taste for a certain rhythm that is not necessarily defined by our own intentions it's a response towards the environment and what's being asked of at this time or another time and a desire to live in adjustment to that versus um you know, a pretty standard, stable sort of existence where in the summer it's hot, too hot to do anything outside. So we blast the AC and we're inside. We're going to watch TV. The winter is too cold to go out and do anything. We're going to blast the heat (laughs) and we're going to watch some TV. Uh You know, like, of course, that's like an extreme version of the of this of the thing. But but basically, if you're blasting AC or blasting, you know, heat in order to stay indoors for a certain something, then you're not allowing that healthy rotation of activity as you would find just in a tree. Just look at a tree. Imitate the life of a tree. It's exploding with new life each spring based on the death that it went through in the winter. And it's requiring all of the water that you can give it (laughs) to make it through the hottest, driest days in summer. And it's bearing the gift of the care that it was given in return before it goes back into its death. Like, just live life that way. You want, like, we, you know, we, we, the, the analogies that are possible in terms of spiritual development or emotional development, just in regards to nature, just in regards to the hunt, as we started off this conversation, are more than enough material from which to draw from. And yet, it's very seldom the case. Everything seems very mid-range right without peaks and valleys as you go through even like the liturgical year within the church there's certain things that happen you know like but it's not based on a we're gonna die for a season and then we're gonna bloom right and how exciting would that be and i think that ultimately like people would be able to participate with a more authentic interaction in those things, because that is a natural cycle that the soul is feeling drawn towards, not as if it's always got to be at its peak, but it needs to draw away from, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, what, what you're saying about glow getting to this point where it's like now she's moving back into um, her teaching job, but garden's not done. Right. Your first frost hasn't come yet. I'm guessing. Right. And so, well now 
you have competing interests. You have this massive garden that's not done yet. Uh, harvest hasn't happened, you know, wholly. And at some point, you guys are going to see on the news where they're like, okay, this weekend we're going to have a frost. And you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> And, and that's a Kairos moment, right? That's a, that's a moment where you're like, now is the time that all of this work is necessary. You know, we were letting it go as long as we can. And yeah, we could work little by little on some other priorities, but oh, oh crap. And now this is a real priority. And does the current system allow for the spiritual investment that that you have because it, it it is spiritual it's like what what martin talks about when he says that if you don't miss it it wasn't really a part of you you know mm -hmm. um so the fact that you're having this separation um the, this, this sort of separation anxiety from being all, like all of a sudden being like oh now i can't be with my garden every day it's a demonstration of that relationship and, and that spiritual connection. And yet you're just supposed to, for the, the modern world, you're just supposed to turn it off, but the garden right. garden's not done yet. Cause even right. though we call this fall, it's not fall. Right. It's right. not fall yet. We're still in the summer. Uh, we're in right. the thick of the summer and we are in the, right. the middle of what would have been harvest season, a time when all families would have been hands on in their crop, making sure that they were canning and uh, harvesting, put drying, preserving, whatever they could so that they could move into the winter. And, you know, if, if the culture as a whole is going to say, yeah, we're not interested in that. Great. Then change your education system to reflect the fact that you <laughs> don't value that and that that's not what you do. Mm. But here you have an example of what Martine talks about in terms of like, well, it's a spiritual connection because if you don't miss it when it's gone, you never had a relationship with it in the first place. And so the missing mm -hmm. Or that feeling, that conflict within ourselves at this time of the year is an example of our spiritual and emotional connection to the relationship that we've been cultivating all throughout the summer and then over multiple years, you know, if you do this on a regular basis, uh, cyclically. <laughs> so we're, we're in a, a sort of trap of competing priorities and you you're going to be at this moment where it's like, okay, well you can kind of get away with maybe you irrigate your garden and it continues for the next couple of weeks, but you're going to hit this time when the meteorologist on the weather station is going to come over and say, Hey, guess what? We're having a freeze this weekend. So, you know, that's the end. <laughs> and you're going to go into <laughs> mayhem trying to harvest everything that you can harvest before that freeze hits. Right. Uh -huh. And so all of the grading that, that you might have as a teacher or all of the, <laughs> uh, you know, what if that happens on a Wednesday 
you know, <laughs> and you're like <laughs> in the middle of your work week and she's in the middle of her week. Uh-huh. week. Kids are going in our, our, their school and you're just like, what do we do? And I've been in that situation <laughs> so many times where I'm just like, well, we have to harvest five days early because I'm not going to have time next week when the freeze comes or, mm-hmm. you know, it comes in quick and you're like, what, this is happening. And you're out pulling, you're just pulling tomato plants at like, you know, while the <laughs> snow is coming, starting to come down, you're like, oh, you're like stick them inside. Right. Like <laughs> my whole garage is full of tomato cages with, with these, you know, sopping wet, you know, tomatoes that are, that are, that are done. <laughs> and, you know, that's what the reality has to be now because the system, while it is a holdover from a time when that was real for everybody, now that's real for very few people, um, but still love our summers off. And what I'm saying is, you know, if if the system isn't going to care about that sort of agro cycle that it's based off of, that's fine but then they should change their calendar so that it's modeled after the forgetting curve, after dealing with the forgetting curve, which is what it's modeled after right now. Information is disconnected and abstract. And so you're, you need that timed repetition of non-relevant information. If the learner is going to retain the information and uh, Ebbinghaus you know, just discovered this in the 19th century, where he kind of, you know, focused on trying to create a model where he uh, depicted like, okay, if I'm giving this random set of numbers, how long does it take for me to forget it before I need a repetition? How long can I remember it? And then I need to revisit the information in order to remember it. And that's what the forgetting curve is based on. And the entire system that we're in, uh, albeit there's some creative teachers and some one-off things going on here and there, but it's totally disconnected. And it's not reliable as a system as a whole. The whole system as we have it right now, the conventional system is based on teaching to the forgetting curve. And the thing that kills the forgetting curve is two months off in the summer. That's why you have a slide. That's why you have the summer slide. Because you don't have timed repetition of non-relevant information. You know, I, it's hard for me to not, you know, I like these conversations, but it would also be nice to have, you know, as you said, an atheist in the room, right? <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm already thinking of, well, wait a minute. So you're saying that emotional and spiritual development in a vibrant, cyclical manner is not possible without a following of the cycles of nature? No, I'm saying that. Emotional and spiritual learning is absolutely dependent on relationship building. And if you don't spend the time to build relationships, relationships are what makes information relevant. Mm. And so if you're not, for example, 
your older son Owen plays baseball, right? Mm -hmm. And he's playing football. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> information about baseball, or you guys went to see a, a, a baseball game last week, right? It that's his connection with that because he plays baseball is very different than just taking someone to a baseball game who's never played, who doesn't engage in that. That's not what they do. They're not interested in it. You're just like, Hey, let's go to a baseball yeah. game. And you're like, and they're, they, they right. can be totally okay with it. They can be, you know, totally fine. But the relationship that your son has with it because he plays the game because he's invested all this time and he smelled the dirt and he's gotten all sweaty and he's had to clean his clothes. And because we play Peter, Paul and Mary songs called right field on our way down to Boston <laughs> and we extrapolate it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, you know, like, yeah. The, so all i this is the challenge this is my challenge to anyone who's an educator is like all right what would it be like to make all learning that all learning if you have a curriculum yeah okay go through that curriculum make sure that every student every learner within your batch right has that type of relationship with every single <laughs> goal, every single objective, try it. And, and the exercise of that is, I think uh, it's so valuable because yeah. there's nothing that will destroy and dissolve the nonsense of the current model of education. Like doing that. If you just try yeah, it, <laughs> it's like yeah i mean and 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 i mean this is taking me way back into the conversation when when you i'll i'll call it a slip when you spoke of success in the hunt with a with a certain shooting of an elk mm -hmm. um you know we we rectified that with gardening um you know, we're clear on the success of the broccoli this season. It's been phenomenal. I'm not entirely sure what my body feels about such an influx of broccoli <laughs> versus my, uh, like our non-successful carrots. <laughs> but, you know, broccoli has been abundant. Um, and, and, and that'll feed the next season mm. um, from the, you know, from what happens in the darkness of winter, you know, downstairs. But it, it it's not like an, a non-success of the carrot. The narrative right now is carrots aren't what they were last year. I'm not sure why. <laughs> okay. So that's full of like a prior success, a, Temporary failure and a reevaluation. There's nothing more dialectic than that. Now, w would it be fair to say that the carrot, because my my problem is similar, it's cucumbers. It's like I keep inviting cucumbers back into my life every year, and they're just like, nope. And so, would it be fair to say that carrots for you this year, similar to the way 
cucumbers are for me perennially, it seems at this point, that they're kind of like peat. They're kind of like what? Pete Best Hall. <laughs> you just keep inviting them. And you know, you know that I they're didn't out think there. you'd throw like such an intimate <laughs> analogy into the into the ring so nobody could possibly oh, no, get just it. in case Pete is, uh, is is listening at some point, you know, like maybe, maybe this is part of my invitation. He probably will understand it better than anyone because I'm sure he's got some sort of carrot or cucumber in that beautiful yard. And garden, no that, like, shit. We are, I'm sure he does. Like, <laughs> we are not exposed to <laughs> walnuts. But but you know what I was getting at in terms of your your invitation, kind of to educators. And unfortunately, it's um, I'll say an unfair invitation because the system is imposing. Uh, uh, let me go with this a little bit. The the system is imposing standardization, right? They're, they're, the success is across the board um, and it's uniform. You don't really want a super huge broccoli. You just want a broccoli um, and you don't want failures. Figure it out. But... <laughs> If we look at education and we zoom out, there's very few failures. If you breathe a little bit and allow, you know, that maybe the carrot had a grandfather that died this year. You know, I don't know. Mm. Like we can, I throw it in as an example, right? Educators are not allowed that. This is not a harping on individuals. This is an invitation into sometimes an impossibility. Yeah, I, I would say that educators are are perennially up against this problem of say like they're growing broccoli. As long as the broccoli is has matured to a certain size, they're good. And they're going to work on the broccoli that is struggling, right? If the broccoli is somehow overly successful and you have like these one or two broccolis often on the edge or in the middle that are just super broccolis that you're just like, whoa, they're not going to worry about those because they're really, really successful. They're going to double down on their effort on the broccolis that are not successful. Mm -hmm. So, the current education model is about exponentially investing more and more time in the mm. unsuccessful, right? At and, and I would say at the detriment, at the expense of all the other broccoli. We, we can add to this further. Um, the system, we can attack that, and I will, uh, is not really interested in the luscious variety of the garden. We are here to monocrop. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and, and so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't <laughs> like, get to say, the, the, well... 
this this broccoli is unsuccessful over here, but look at this corn. It's really good. It's like, why are you even growing corn? Why? We don't grow corn. That's an art class. (laughs) Yeah, yes, yeah, really. I mean, if anything... I want to be clear what what we are acknowledging and what we've lived and experienced and see and have seen is the extreme difficulty in these things. Uh, Not just as educators, I'm going to tap into the realms of parents um, that are also listening. Um, We are up against really difficult stuff and the, importance of a garden is that slow engagement of a different rhythm, a different system that analogies are valuable and you have to have them from which to draw from. And you cannot get this stuff from picking up some self-help book. Because what were you saying before, like the science projects that we have in schools about trying to grow a plant from seed are not the real deal because there's not that accountability to see it through. Well, it's kind of like, look, if you're like, we're going to do a science project and we're going to study biology. So we're going to put a bean in a Starbucks cup. And, uh, and we're going to plant, you know, put some, some potting soil that we bought from the local garden center, from <laughs> Home Depot in here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll use some miracle grow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of like studying pre-birth, like conception in a test tube, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, everyone needs to right. know about conception and, and the the development of a fetus. Okay, yeah. Uh, so this is what we're, we're on do, a screen. Guys. Everybody is going to get your two gametes, and you're going to fertilize those gametes. You're going to do it. <laughs> Everybody's going to grow their own like fetal human, and in this class, not you know, what are we going to do with the fetal humans <laughs> at the end of the class? I don't know. It depends on what political color you are. I don't know. But <laughs> that's how insane it is. It's just like, so like, and this is a, a project that is just recreated over and over again in preschool and kindergarten and first grade, second grade, over and over and over again, where there's like, okay, everybody put your Starbucks cups in the, in the window with your beans, you know, like, like, so she's like, well, everybody put your fetal humans in the incubator. <laughs> Keep these guys warm for another nine months. Right? Like, it's insane. Well, it actually accentuates and adds towards the denaturalization of all of it. It adds to the hubris that is expendable. I am not. You know, like if you really think about like the negative side effects of these little projects that pop up here and there, it would be better to just yeah. Stay when you think off. about so, if we go back to that relationship development, you're, you know, your your wife, a garden, 
has a relationship, she feels anxiety, conflict, goes back to school, doesn't have time for the garden. You imagine that what you're doing is exposing all these children have start having a relationship with a plant and it's in a wholly oh, yeah. unnatural environment. Oh, and, yeah. but the, the child yeah. doesn't know that to them. They're like, this is my plant and it's growing. And they're developing yeah. that spiritual, emotional connection with the plant. Uh -huh. But the person in charge of the uh -huh. entire thing yeah. looks at all of those plants typically as being, uh, it's just a bunch of beans. If they die, they die. It's not Expert. a big deal. If we don't get them in the garden, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like the the adult, the facilitator in charge has this an enormous amount of power in how they're affecting the emotional and spiritual development and evolution of the child. And they have no idea. Uh, they have no idea. And, and parents, you know, educators, like everyone's come. And I know people are trying to do what they do because they're coming from a meaningful, like, I mean, well, I mean, well, and it's like, this is the problem is that we haven't actually as, as a large enough group gone through the process of sitting down and saying, this is what's actually happening. You know, you talk about like the garden as, as an analogy and it's like, it is an analogy, but every year I consider the words of Martine. He said, you know, when I, was with him in 2004 or something like that. He said, the most significant act of insubordination or rebellion that anyone can engage in, in this culture, is growing a garden in your backyard. And at the time, I did not understand how literal and profound that statement was. There was no way that I could understand that. But it's beyond an analogy. Those relationships are real. And when we just talk about it as an analogy, in some way we're cheapening it, right? We're saying it's just an analogy. You could use anything as an yeah. analogy for this. And it's like, well, well, and and we're cheap, not only cheaping it, but there's also this huge assumption. The analogy can only be understood by the yes. one that has a garden. <laughs> you can't say it's <laughs> like having a garden, right? Like at that point, the the analogy may be true, but it is lost to the one who doesn't have a garden. So can there be truth in something that is lost? I, I, I don't know. Here we're going into this whole other realm of like poetics where the value is hoped for on the reader, but it may only be on the one that composed. I don't know. Like that's, that's so a it's different very conversation. Apt, I, I would argue because originative has a, holistic writing rubric that we developed a long time ago. And when I hear you mention poetics, I like a magnet jump right to the originative holistic writing rubric, which says 
Here are some delineations of the type of writing that you might experience. On the one hand, you have textbooks or instructions, right? You buy something from Ikea and it's got a pamphlet of instructions on how to put this thing together that's, you know, translated into 18 different languages maybe, but it's the intention is like entirely objective. Like we do not want there to be any reading between the lines. It's like, this is what you do. You do it like this. And if you do it like this, this is what will happen, right? It's very, very explicit. And next to that, you get news or periodicals or blogs, you know, something that attempts to be objective more or less, but less now, you know, in, in the modern, in our current system, the number of articles that are produced that are actually within that column of news, it's like is so small because most people have a political agenda that they're trying to like push and so they're really they're really writing prose, not news. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that news section would be like, how do we use a little bit of flavor? We're going to use a little bit of flavor with this. We are going to be as explicit as possible, but we're talking about things that are a little bit more abstract than just like putting this, you know, very physical IKEA shelf together. And so news has to have a little bit more freedom to invite the reader to read more, um, especially beyond the three or four sentences that are that holds the attention span of the modern reader, <laughs> you know, the Twitter attention. Right. Um, and then next to that, you have prose. Mm-hmm. And prose is a pretty big spectrum. And like I said, most news now is actually prose. It's sold as news, but it's actually prose. Mm-hmm. It's actually someone is trying to write with a certain intention, they're going to subtract some information and push some information so that, so that they're really leading the reader to a certain point that they want the reader to get to. And we saw that like through COVID all over the place. Wow. So if we were going to look at COVID through the lens of this writing rubric, there was a shift from journalistic writing into prose because the gates of invitation were open into persuasion versus just narration of fact. Kind of. I I think that they had it. They had a unique window because we live in a culture that is willing uh, many people, not, not everyone, but many people are willing to, ignore the critical thinking that comes with reading something and saying, okay, is this an instruction manual? Is this news or is this prose? That if you don't tell them up front, then you're expecting them to critically think and they read it and then they say, okay, based on what this is, I'm putting it in this category. But we live in a time where if you just call something science, people assume that it's instruction manual slash news. That it's truth. Right. That it just jumps over to that objective side. Doesn't it? Well, science is 
more of a religion right now than a institution of objectivism. What do you mean? Well, science as a practice is all about questioning everything, right? So as soon as one scientist postulates something, everyone says, eh, let's see. Let's see if that's really true. Uh-huh. Right. And what we got was people saying, this is science. Don't question it. Oh. Right. This is science. Well, that's trust. a substantial you to, shift. You need to trust. And people would based on like how big the entity it was coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. Because no one has time to go sift through and like actually read all the citations. So, so are there louder voices of science? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that there's little science, like science with a little S and then there's science with a capital S. So there's lowercase S, capital S, capital S science, which is what most things were sold as capital S is the religion of science. So you trust in it because it's science. You don't have to do any work on your own because the priests of science are giving you this information. Are you, when you listen to the atheistic voices of our age, when you listen into that, are they really advocating for atheism or does it fall within this realm of the religion of science that you're speaking of? As soon as you call any belief structure a thing, so as soon as you say atheism, like I'm an atheist and you're identifying as a group and that group has a common mode of thinking, you're creating a religion. That is a belief structure. And so atheism is as much a religion as Catholicism, oh, okay, okay, as okay. science, as anything else. Because so then, then people will say, I'm well, pointing at a religion that they've they've started. Well, or or you know, acknowledging like, it. You're acknowledging that they put themselves into a certain group that has a certain uh, okay. parameter okay. of beliefs. It has a certain structure of beliefs. Okay. And so, the yeah. irony of atheism is that it's an attempt to to say that they don't believe in a God, but they're still creating a structure of belief. And so they've still created a religion. <laughs> right? Wow. Okay. Well, that is a whole other topic in and of itself. But um, it is spiritual. It's. I would say this is actually kind of gets to our, our underlying point. If a student comes to me and they're like, I'm an atheist. It's like, I'm like, that's great. It doesn't mean that you're not spiritual. Right. I mean, right? yeah. So my whole question was because I'm actually trying to understand the pronouncement of those under the umbrella of atheism within a disbelief of their atheism, but an acknowledgement of their spirituality. Like it's a really interesting conundrum. I think it's a, I mean, Wishful thinking? At the very least, it's a lack of understanding of rhetoric. You might call the animal kingdom, like, that's not human, 
atheism because they just do what they do. And they don't have an imagination for trying to organize mm-hmm. around a certain idea. But mm-hmm. as soon as you have an idea and you organize around it and you say, I'm dedicated to this idea, you've created a belief structure, which is essentially like, as soon as you get three people involved in it, you have a religion, right? This is what it's a lot of what I think Joseph Campbell and, and Bly talked a little bit about this is that if you had three people and they didn't know each other and they all came from different religions and they were stranded on an, on an island in the middle of nowhere and they had to start getting along, they would create myth. Like they would invent myth and, and not just myth in jet like their own myth, all the myths that have ever existed. Because as soon as you start a structure of human experience, um, you have to deal with human nature. And at some point, if you're dealing with human nature, you're dealing with problems of ethics, which are not problems of objective logic. In fact, most of the time, ethics is working outside of the laws and the boundaries of of logic to the demise and to the uh, bafflement of logisticians. I'm thinking back to a speech that I heard from a, uh, a fellow Rotarian last week concerning a concentration camp that existed in Beijing, China during World War II. And the concentration camp was formed for all the foreigners that were in Beijing or in China at the time. And it consisted of maybe 2,000, 2,500 people at, uh, during its time. And the people were just blocked off. Uh, they were fed, but they had to create their own rules. And once you have all these people that are coming from different cultures, from different languages, they have to create a political system, a judicial system, all of these things happen. And what they discover through the process of doing that is that logic is actually the least reliable trait within a system like that. (laughs) The deceptive part is that humans will use an ethical argument to get something for themselves. So they Mm. will serve their self-interest, but they'll do it in this coercive way of using an ethical argument. Any religious argument is basically this. Uh, But if we say God has expressed an interest in saving all of humanity, Um, So we need to force all of the people in humanity to convert to this God in order so that they can be saved, right? Like, so you're going to destroy cultures, kill people, start wars, experience all the conflict that's going to come with, you know, that purpose and that intention. And you're going to, but you're okay doing it because you think that you're ethically and morally sound in doing that we're dealing with the leftovers in this country of Protestant Christianity's uh, havoc. Mm. You know, not that there weren't good Protestant Christians. There are today right. and there were that like, throughout progress time. Was, Great. Progress was made. But the argument for people to steal other people's land was, well, they're savages. Right. They'll learn if we put them on a reservation and, or put them into boarding schools and teach them our language right. and this and that. Right. Right. Now, there's something about spiritual development. You know, see, when I was growing up, 
it's as if spiritual development required victory over the opponent. Right now, you know, this is 30-some years later. There's a beautiful potential of either, well, it would be beautiful to plunge into an ecumenical celebration of differences within which spiritual development can take place, you know, in a tree form, the leaf manifestations. Let's take spiritual development as the trunk. Whatever your leaf is, great. But let's make sure the trunk and the roots are firm. We've come a long way, I would say, in terms of tolerance, which is a double-edged sword, because it isn't really a celebration of the other. It's almost like as long as you're not present or as long as certain things don't cross lines, we can coexist but it's mostly an agree to disagree sort of really impoverished approach towards just which is like a strong vitality. Like I can't imagine a tree feeling that the branch that, you know, leans off into the East cares about how a branch off in the West needs and uses sunlight to channel its energies back into the trunk. (laughs) What I'm getting at with all of this is that we are in a time where we're very careful to not offend, very careful to not touch on this or that. And it seems like if we were to seriously consider spiritual development then we would have to meet move almost almost beyond or drag forward that hypersensitivity into a realm of it's all celebrated but how i see an extreme difficulty right now if we just poise the question as how to develop you know spiritual Um, systems of development within plurality. Like that seems difficult at this time because it's as if my truth can only succeed at the expense of yours or the alternative being let's not address any of them and let's act act like none of it exists. So I think that that's, getting at a problem that I think you articulated last week. And that is the problem with seeing, with equating spirituality with a belief in what, whoever or whatever you name your God. And if, if we avoid doing that, because I think that that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Well, just don't do it. I say you can believe in, whatever God or gods or goddess that your culture 
has defined as a pathway for how you channel your spirituality but it isn't it isn't an equivalent of spirituality so belief in god doesn't mean that someone's spiritual and i think that that's really evident right i think that we we all know people in our lives who might be churchgoers they might profess that they are affiliated with a certain religion or a certain order or a certain sect um but we we wouldn't call them spiritual right and at the same time i know plenty of people that profess their uh, allegiance to the religion of science capital s and are incredibly spiritual people right uh, so i think it's separating this idea that spiritual has anything to do with the God that you name or the gods that you name or the goddess that you name or the God that you will not name. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The God that you say, I'm not going to name a God. I don't have a God. I believe in science. <laughs> right. Like, Oh, you uh, believe in that. Dude. You believe, right? Okay. You're a believer uh -huh. in that right. thing. Okay. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't, none of that matters. When we talk about spirituality, it's about the intangible aspects of relationship development. It's about how do you feel? What effect is going on inside of you when a dear loved one passes? Where does that relationship go? How does it develop? after that fact, right? When you've grown a tomato and it's beautiful and you cut that up and you put it on sandwiches and you share it with people and someone takes that sandwich, takes the piece of bread off the top and takes the tomato off and says, I don't like tomatoes. How do you feel? Right? That the, the, the feeling that you get there of just like, oh, that, you know, because it's beyond just what your work is. It's beyond what you are. You care for that thing in a way that's beyond you. And so that's a, a tiny example of spiritual tangibility, right? That exists everywhere, but we live in a time where we have been programmed to compartmentalize that word. You know, and I, I'll go back to the Scandinavian movie about the, the Sami and about the Nuadi, the shaman who chokes the kid and says, what, how are you not spiritual, <laughs> right? If you respire, if you respirate, you are pulling the spiritual energy out of the world that you can't see. Oh, and yeah, we could break it down into these chemicals and these chemicals and these chemicals, but it's the spiritual part of that is the connection. And it's what's not explained in objective science mm. is that the only way that you or I or anybody is afforded these ideas, these conceits, the philosophies, 
uh, narcissism, philanthropy, uh, in any of that. We can't do that if we're not breathing, guys. Can't do it. Can't do it without the cycles, the biological cycles that are happening on this planet that afford us the luxury of the consciousness that has been cultivated magically, you know, supernaturally, scientifically, biologically over millennium, millennium, millennium. Right. Like, so the idea that there's still that essentially consciousness is still not understood. Right. As brilliant as science is, um, they don't understand consciousness. Right. Uh, We're going to be working at this thing for a long time. It's not to say that consciousness is a synonym for spirituality. It's saying that there's something unseen. There's something else that's happening. And that something else that's happening is also happening in plants. It's also happening in animals. It's probably also happening. We should maybe just kind of just assume that it's happening on a, on a planetary or a global scale. Like, does the earth itself feel and we might not have the the scientific instruments to say yes or no to that at, at this time, but just because we don't have the scientific instruments, should we assume that because science can't say yes to that question that we should assume that it's a no? No, <laughs> like I'm not willing to do that. You know, like I'm not I'm not willing to say that if I know that inside my body there are millions of bacteria that if I didn't have those bacterium doing what they do, I wouldn't have my body or my consciousness. I would die. Am am I willing to say that with all the intricacy of life on this planet, could the earth be slightly conscious? Like, Hmm. I don't know. But it's, it's a question that's worth keeping open because we don't have the tools at at this point in time, as advanced as we are, as technologically proficient as we are, we don't know. So part of it is beyond philosophy. And that part of it, the idea that you have a different relationship with, say, your mother than Mm -hmm. your sisters and your brother have with your mother. Well, how do you define that difference of relationship? Other than saying it's an emotional and spiritual thing. Right. And how do you define now the relationship that you have with your father? You still have a relationship with your father. He has passed. Absolutely. You still have a relationship with him. Is that a physical relationship? (laughs) Like, how do you define it? Your kids have a relationship with him. Your wife has a relationship with all these friends and family. Everyone has a relationship with him. You like, so what do you define that? What that's the thing. So we are bigger than this physicality. And that's why holistic learning looks at, yes, we account for the physical. We account for emotional. We account for spiritual. We account for communal, right? We invest, we say absolutely physical, absolutely cognitive and academic, absolutely emotional and social, absolutely spiritual. Yes to everything, because 
That is what it means to be human. Being human is all of those things. And we want an education system that teaches to the human, not to some really narrow slice of cognitive ability that is, uh, is accounted for by the regional accreditors of academic, you know, colleges and high schools, right? Like what they do, they do, they do well, they don't do everything. They admit that they don't do everything. Uh, and the human is way bigger than academics gang way bigger. Why don't we have an education system that responds to the grandeur of what it means to be human, what it means to be human in relation to all of the other things on this planet, all the other things in the solar system and the galaxy. What, what, what are we doing? We can have an international space station, but we can't figure out how to like make an education system respond to what it, the, the, the bigness, the, the grandeur of, of, of human existence. Ah, we're a little behind and, and narrowing it down to four subjects, like an, and an acronym like STEM, not cutting it. We're, we're, that's not an advancement. That is a regression. Mm, but, man, I feel in spite of that, that there is plenty of playing room ahead. It will require stamina, resilience, rebellion against the notion of taboo. You have to realize that the ecumenical movement is a beautiful one. It's hard to understand and very hard to walk, but it fosters a celebration of the spiritual development, no matter where you're coming from or where you're headed. And we definitely have fostered a relationship, a community based around uh, those principles of understanding. And they circle back to poems and stories you have mentioned in which different traditions gather and the end all is are you stronger in what you believe and ultimately what you believe is we need to love each other a little bit better <laughs> we need to understand <laughs> each other a little bit better yeah we should those are nice <laughs> those are nice manifestations of the differences we may have, even with science, the religion of science. Right now, I would say the biggest danger is falling into taboo. Yes. And for that, people need to be allowed to speak. Ideas, no matter how offensive or how creative or how ideal or how totally far out the ideas are they need to be able to live somewhere they need to be bounced around you know like a ping pong table with multiple balls or, <laughs> or we need to play with them 
It's uh, like, uh, and you know, what's funny is that the other day I brought my two boys out to play ping pong. Owen's more savvy. He He's good. Okay. And we played our rounds and he was like, enough is enough. Then I bring Zozo okay. out and I bought a hundred balls and I pl- served them all. And in under 25 seconds, I was up 42 to three. And the garage was full of ping pong balls. Owen was mostly mad that I beat him. Zozo was just Owen or no, Owen. Because in the previous game, right? The the oh, okay. the, the the structured game. Zozo delighted in the chaos of a garage full of ping pong balls. <laughs> and at the end of his game, he said, Dad, would you like me to make you an ice cream? <laughs> and I had defeated him like 42 to 3 in under 25 seconds. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe far out what I'm saying, but I'm okay in a structured environment. If I need to play ping pong the way you want to play, I can play ping pong. I'm also okay in you're probably going to get mad and frustrated if I play ping pong with you. So I am serving these 100 balls at you as fast as I can. And there will be so, you know, and it comes down to other things that we've talked about another, like, like not everything has to be solved or figured out in one debate, in one exchange, Mm. in one school year, in one, one classroom, but remaining true towards saying, let's move forward into something that's richer something that's greater with a playful manner. We've talked about it so many times. The best way to know that you've really overcome some sort of resentment is, can you laugh at it? Right. It's the humor, right? And the absence of humor in the current social climate is a disaster for our humanity because what you're talking about is i think i think back to a a word that i learned in costa rica the mantequilla uh remember when we were having our americano studios field day and we went to the park and we were playing games and so Sometimes we played rugby and then we played volleyball and then we played soccer and we played all the games, right? And everyone gets to participate. And there are people, you know, the age difference, the age spectrum of the studio was, you know, four, five, six years old to (laughs) 30 40 50 60 i think at one time we had an 80 year old person so we we had a, a and a, and at one time we had a six a six month old in the, in the school but for our games we have this huge spectrum of people and they're all there to play 
right? It isn't that we're not competitive, but we're not only competitive. And so uh-huh. you make a space for uh, to include the people mm. who are not going to be able to perform at the same level of merit as you know the 18 year old and so you call those kids the mantequilla (laughs) la mantequilla right right like that and it and it was it's a concept that doesn't really like it's a cultural phenomenon that happens in the u.s for sure where you know you're uh, you know the the whole family is going to go play you know family reunion okay let's go play softball okay let's make sure that everyone gets to play. And then the six year old goes out there and they can't hit. And so you, but you let them go out there anyway. And they, and so the, the pitcher comes in and throws it really, really underhand. And, and you keep throwing it like way beyond, like you, you do more than, you know, 10 strikes, 15 strikes, but as soon as they hit it once, then you're like, okay, that's the month that's dealing with the month of And so you're not taking your competition so seriously that you're excluding everyone from having a chance to participate. But as soon as like the next person comes up is 18 year old hotshot, right. Who played, who played baseball in high school, that pitcher is going to go back on the mound and they're going to throw the best pitch that they can. Right. So all of a sudden your level play goes up because merit, merit, counts merit counts and every level of every society in the world knows that merit counts and if you have a social system that tries to discount merit and says that no everyone let's just make everything the lowest common denominator well then you're going to get some frustration right and then you're going to get the mentality of like why should i work because my work is not rewarded. Why should I struggle at anything? Right? And if you don't have something bigger than you to invest that energy into, if you don't have a bigger purpose, then why wouldn't that end up in depression, anxiety, grief that has no home? And and perhaps suicide and and violence that's where we're at well not to end on a bad note but we will cut the podcast there some food for thought uh over this week and next before our next podcast with that i am ron green and i am carl aka glue scabby it's been good to be back with y'all remember to check out our other podcasts if you haven't done that you want to engage us in our whatsapp group about all things holistic education and that we talked about in the podcast and more please send us an email to future at originative.org 